Good morning. I want to greet each one in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Well, I'm on the last part of the study on Hebrews. I don't know if that's a relief or sadness to you, but I'm going to try to finish that up today. Looking at the uh, last part of Hebrews chapter 12 and then the whole chapter 13 of Hebrews. Last time we looked at Hebrews, uh, we ended at verse 17, uh, chapter 12, verse 17, looking at how Esau sold his birthright and was rejected by God because of his rebellion against God and against uh, God's laws. But I just wanted to go back again and read um, pick up at uh, verse 15 to kind of get the idea that continues on in through verses 18, 19. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how afterward, when he would have inherited the, the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And now, verse 18, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. And the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which voice that heard entreated, that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so, much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. What is, he, what is the writer here speaking of when it talks about that they were afraid to come near. They were afraid to touch the mount. And I believe it's speaking of uh, Mount Sinai when the children of Israel were uh, with Moses there. And God came down upon the mountain. Is God the same God today? Does he still, is he still someone we should fear? And we all tend to gravitate, I think, towards one direction or another when we think about God. But it is the same God, the same God that held the, the Jews to that standard, that if they even touched the mount when God was on top of it, that they would be stoned. I had to think of the story, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6. This this made me think of another story of thinking of who God is and how seriously he took people getting close to him physically. 1 Samuel chapter 6, and I plan to read the, the whole chapter, but it's a familiar story. 
of when the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant. Previously to this, the Jews had tried to use the Ark of the Covenant as a secret weapon, as a defense against their enemies, even though that was never God's intent for the Ark of the Covenant. But they had used it for that. The Philistines came, took the Ark of the Covenant back to the land of the Philistines, to where the Philistines lived. And now this story happens. And the Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners, saying, What shall we do to the Ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send to his place. And they said, If we send away the Ark of God of Israel, send it not empty, but in any wise return him a trespass offering. Then ye shall have then ye shall be healed, and it shall be known to you by why his hand is not removed from you. Then said they, What shall be the trespass offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden emrods and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. One for one plague was on you all and on your lords. Wherefore ye shall make images of your emrods and images of your mice that shall mar the land that mar the land and ye shall give glory unto the God of Israel. Peradventure he will lighten his hand off from off you, and from off your gods, and from off your land. Wherefore then do ye harden your hearts as the Egyptians, and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? And when he had wrought wonderfully among them, did they not let the people go, and they departed? Now therefore make a new cart, and take two milkkins, on which there hath come no yoke, and tie the kin to the cart. And bring your calves home from them. And take the ark of the Lord and lay it upon the cart. And put the jewels of gold which ye return him for a trespass offering in a coffer by the side thereof. And send it away that it may go. And see if it goeth by the way of its own coast to Beth Shemesh. Then he hath done this great evil unto us. But not, then we shall know it is not his hand that smote us. It was... It was a chance that it happened to us. So the men did so and took the milk in and tied it to the cart and shut up the calves at home. And they laid the ark of the Lord upon the cart and a coffer with the mice of gold and images of the emeralds. And they took, and the kin took the straight way to the way of Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. And then I'm going to go down to um, verse 19. And this is speaking of God. And he spoke the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote the people, 50,000 and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented because the Lord had spitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And the people of Beth Shemesh said... Who is able to be stand before this holy Lord God, and to whom shall he go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Githjotharim, saying, The Philistines have brought up again the ark of the Lord. Come ye down and fetch it up to you. This sounds again like what happened to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. They recognized through God's judgment when they got too close that it was not something to be messed with. The presence of God was something to 
fear. And that fear actually went into a too much of a fear where they just said, we want nothing to do with it rather than a healthy, reverential fear. But I believe that's what it's t- talking about in Hebrews 12 here. So do, do we still need to fear God in the same way? Because we recognize that that's how God was viewed there in the Old Testament. But I don't think that's the case, and I think we'll see that as we move on here then in verses 20 through through 29. But ye are come into Mount Sion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just made of men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, how much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth? But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signify the removing of the things that are shaken as of the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved, Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. So, as believers, as Christians today, there is a difference in how we come to God. In the Old Testament, we know that the presence of God was on the Ark of the Covenant, and that was inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and only the high priest could go in once a year. And even he went in with a rope tied around his leg, so if something happened and he died, that he could be pulled out safely without others losing their life. In verse 29, it says, God is a consuming fire. But yet something did change when Christ came to earth. We no longer need to fear God in the same way as what the Jews in the Old Testament did. And why is that? Why do we not need to fear in that same way? And I believe it has to do with the fact that Jesus, as it says in verse 24, he's a mediator between us. If you have a mediator between you and a king who has the authority to take off your head if he doesn't like you if you have a mediator you don't have near as much fear of being in the same place as that king or ruler because you know there's someone that's going to be at your defense to speak your cause and and, uh, defend you if something comes up that would maybe make the king want to kill you. In the same regards, Jesus is that mediator. And what gives him that right? It's because of him shedding his blood on the cross that he can be that mediator for us. The Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God was looked at as a jealous husband. 
as someone to be feared. But under the new covenant, even though God is still to be feared, in a sense that he is who he is, he is a all-knowing, all-powerful God, and yet we also recognize that he is loving, that he sent his son to die, and so there's that side of God that the, the Jews of the Old Testament often did not see. If we are not a believer today, I believe you still should have that fear of God, the sense that he is a consuming fire, that he's someone that you can't look on, that you can't meet without dying. But now that Jesus came, if we are a follower of his, for a child of his, a part of his church, we don't have to have that same fear and trembling. Verse 24 also speaks of, it says, um, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. What is he talking about here? We, are, we know that the beginning of the verse is talking about Jesus. But then it says, speaketh of better things than that of Abel. What connection does Jesus have with Abel? I believe it has to do with that Abel, in a sense, was a type and a shadow of Christ. Abel represents the old covenant, the old sacrifice that was needed to be made annually to cover sins. And Christ represents the new covenant and that he was able, because he was the Son of God, to actually be that sacrifice and to take on the sins of the world from the beginning to the end. Secondly, Abel was killed by his brother because of his relationship with God. Jesus was killed by his brother and by his people because he was God. And so I believe that's why verse 24 brings up Abel, recognizing the old covenant, the new covenant, recognizing that Jesus came to replace the system that Abel lived under. But then verse 25 says, just because things are better under the new covenant, just because God has opened up a new way, a better way to come to him, we should not take lightly of refusing that. Because if the people in the Old Testament who refused God could not escape how can we expect to escape today? And I believe that's very true. We must recognize that a refusal to accept Christ, even though it may not affect our lives a lot here on earth, it will have a radical difference in where we end up eternally. So yes, we serve the same God. God is still a consuming fire. But we also serve his son who has made a way for us to reach God. Now moving on to uh, chapter 13 of Hebrews. Verse 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being them, being yourselves also in the body. Why is it good to entertain strangers and to remember those in bonds? I believe the answer to that is because we never know when we might be in that same position, when we'll be a stranger somewhere, where we'll be in prison, and we need others praying for us and lifting us up, encouraging us. And so we need to do that also for others while we are able to. As we go through this last chapter of Hebrews this morning, it will feel like there's lots of just, it seems like random thoughts that don't seem to be connected. And studying into this a little bit, um, I wanted to see if there was something that I was missing, if there was a connection between all these thoughts that we'll look at here in Hebrews 13. And Matthew Henry uh, commentary also recognize that there's seems things that are not connected but yet obviously the writer had a reason for putting them there putting them together and Matthew Henry calls them fruits of faith and I believe that's a a good summary of those so as we look through them we're going to be bouncing it feels like bouncing around but I want to take each one I believe they're all important parts of our faith things to remember things to be challenged on and the first one there is in Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Why is this in here? Why is this important to remember? And I, I believe is, this is one of the things that Satan attacks as he tries to destroy a culture. He starts by attacking marriage. By either, I think, encouraging unhealthy um, methods of marriage or unhealthy uh, attitudes towards it. And so he attacks it. And yet, and then there's other, we know, the, the churches that have tried to say, well, if you're really a really good Christian, you won't even want to get married. You'll just want to be married to God. We think of the nuns and the monks in the Catholic Church and other religions uh, even in, the, in Asia that have nothing to do with Christianity um, they'll set aside people to be celibate and, and, and lift that up as some great thing and yet the writer here is saying no there is nothing wrong with marriage as a Christian it's honorable God, God is pleased with it No, it's not a prerequisite for being a Christian. But if that's God's will for your life, it's not something to be ashamed. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you can just do whatever. That God does have a standard. And that standard must be met. And so I believe that's why the challenge was here. I believe that as people move away from a godly lifestyle from a God-centered culture, that that's one of the things that often shows up first. The divorce rate goes up, infidelity, immorality follow to where they're glorified. We just think of the culture, the music, 
in our culture today that glorify sin and perversions. Moving on then to verse, uh, verses 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with what such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what men shall do unto me. The culture and media around us love to gossip and talk about what wealthy people are doing or not doing or what they're saying. And I think it's easy for us to get caught up in that too. But the challenge here is to not be consumed by that, not be concerned with those that are wealthy, those that are famous around us. We shouldn't be coveting it. We shouldn't be worrying about it. But rather we should be content with what God has given us. An example was uh, this week um, I heard someone talking about how there are people upset that Jeff Bezos is building a $500 million yacht. And some people are saying, well, that's just wrong. He should give his money to the poor. But as believers, I'm not saying you I mean, hearing it isn't wrong just to hear someone talk about it. And maybe you mention it as a crazy story. But at the same time, it shouldn't be our concern. We shouldn't be having discussions with people about how this is a terrible thing or, or it's no big deal or whatever. It should not be our worry. We should not be caught up in wealth and maybe even the coveting of it or telling them what they should do with their money. I believe as believers, we are called to be stewards of what God has put in our hands. Not only to be content with what we have, but to be good stewards of it. If Jeff Bezos was a member here at Salem, then yes, we probably should hold that person accountable to a biblical standard, to biblical principles with money. But otherwise, we shouldn't be worried about it. What if it's another believer in, an, in another Anabaptist church? I still don't think that we should be concerned with it unless that person is a close friend or brother in Christ. Our focus should be on the heavenly kingdom, not on earthly wealth and what other people are doing with their money. Moving on then to verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. I believe this verse is challenging us to look to faithful believers, especially those who have taught us from the pulpit or Bible school or Sunday school and now have passed on to their reward. To look at how they remain faithful to the end, to their death. Now, considering the time when this was written, I believe that many of the believers at that time were most likely not just dying of old age, but were dying because of giving their life for their faith. And so it was very real in a sense of looking at what they said and what they taught before they had to give the ultimate sacrifice. And to, be ch- to, to let that challenge them. But even us today, as we look back on 2,000 years of church history, we can find faithful believers to encourage us also to walk faithful and to be, remain faithful to look at those who didn't just 
talked the talk, but they walked it, they lived it out, faithful unto death. Verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why is this important for our faith? Thinking that the author, the writer of Hebrews was giving one last challenge in this chapter to the group of believers that this was written to. Why does it matter that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Because if Christ is not the same yesterday, today, and forever, then how can we put our faith in him? How can we remain strong into the end? And maybe what we were taught when we were young no longer applies. We hear in the culture around us, well, that was for then. Now, you know, we have this standard. And in some regards, that can be true. A culture can change some things that may not be wrong. Maybe they just change their focus, their emphasis. But that's never true about God's word and the truth around Jesus Christ. It It made me think of um, the Bible verse uh, in Revelations 1.8 Jesus says I'm the Alpha and Omega the beginning and the end saith the Lord which is which was and which is to come the Almighty that phrase is found four times the Alpha and the Omega it's found four times in the Bible and they're all in Revelations and they're all about Christ what's the significance with that I always knew that it had to do with Alpha and Omega being the beginning and the end because it says it right after it. But the interesting thing about Alpha is the name of the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Omega is the final letter in the Greek alphabet. And we know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. And so it was almost like bookends to say everything that was written in the Old Testament and the New Testament I am it. Because then we also have in the New Testament where Jesus, where it's said that Jesus is the word of God. So everything we have in God's word, everything that's happened in history, Jesus was there at the beginning and he'll be there at the end. And he's here with us now in the middle. And so just as it says there in verse 8, he's the same today as he was 6,000 years ago as it'll be a million years from now doesn't change Uh, moving on to verses 9 through uh, 13 be not carried away with divers and strange doctrines for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with meats which have not profited them which have been occupied therein we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, eat which serve the tabernacle but the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his approach. And I struggled with this group of verses in completely understanding. And if you disagree with my summing them up, that's fine. I'd be glad to talk about it afterwards. But the best thing I could understand was 
that once again it's making this comparison between the old covenant and the new. Jesus represents the new covenant. So just as in the lambs, the sacrifices for sin were were burnt outside of the camp, in the same way Jesus was crucified and killed outside of Jerusalem. As I shared on Good Friday, the, the, the Damascus Gate, where we believe that Jesus was put to death very near to that, he was killed outside the camp. And was that necessary? Could it not have worked somewhere else? But yet, because Jesus came to replace the old covenant, the need for the sacrifice of the lambs, I believe that's why we see his crucifixion taking place there. He took on that same sacrifice that the lambs could never permanently save or cover sins. His blood now covers our sins. Verses 14 through 16. Once again, jumping to a new thought. For we here we have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So unlike the Jews who would go to Jerusalem to get closer to God, to be closer to the temple and to the Ark of the Covenant, we as believers, as the church, no longer are required to do that. Under the new covenant, Jesus was that final sacrifice. And so we don't have to go to Jerusalem for that annual sacrifice. And because of that, our sacrifice is a different form. It's praise, it's worship. As it says here, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. We also do it through obedience, through doing good. I don't think that doing good is just like good works, but I believe it's being obedient to God. And to communicate, forget not, the idea of a relationship with fellow believers through the local church, through other ways. Those are all things that are part of our sacrifice to Christ because of what he did on the cross. We don't do it, as I mentioned in the uh, instruction class this morning, we don't do it to earn our salvation. We do it because we've been saved that will in turn want to do good, to be obedient and to worship and to praise God for who he is. Verses 17 through 19. Obey them that have rule over you. Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored the sooner. In this passage, there are other passages that talk about honoring the king, being obedient to 
um, secular authorities. This one here is referring to those that are in the church, those that are above it, over us in authority in the church, the leaders that God has placed over us, that we should obey them, submit to them, as submission has often been misinterpreted when it comes to wives submitting to their husbands the same could be taken here as well why do I have to submit to authority above me in the church it's it's a it's a and it's more of an accountability than let's say of a cult where the leader tells you to sell your house and give him all the money whatever you have to do whatever they say that's not the kind of submission is talking about but this is more of an accountability, a relationship between you and the authority above you that encourages you and helps you in your walk with Christ. And it's because that it's the need for that is so because the leaders will have to give an account for your life, for your spiritual life when you reach when they reach heaven. And so it is it's something to be taken seriously. It's not something that I believe we should be in fear of those over us in authority. But to be grateful that God has placed them in our lives. And even I, even though I'm a minister in this church, even I am under authority. I have those over me. But I also have extra responsibility in the sense that I will have to give an answer for you and so it's not something that I should take lightly either or lord over you in but rather do it in a way of as a servant serving and Paul is or the the writer here whoever he is is talking about that the church should pray for the leaders too that they can have a good conscience meaning that they can feel good about giving account for their their uh, those the lay members under them. It is not something they have to do in in fear or or, or sadness, but they can do it with with joy, and that they can live honestly. Verses twenty to twenty one then. Not only has he asked for the prayers for the leaders in the church, but also now I believe he, in a sense, prays for those in the church, the lay members. Now, the God of peace that brought, you, brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The writer also was praying for them and desiring that they would have peace with God and they would be made perfect. I think this, we need to be careful that we don't get the idea that perfection is possible on earth. But I believe this is speaking of working towards that, being sanctified through the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we should be striving to become more and more mature. I'd like to read now, go back and read uh, some verses from Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 
that I believe are pertinent to this. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Of whom we many things, we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing, for when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need the one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The idea that we shouldn't remain as we were when we first became believers, that we shouldn't just keep taking in the milk, but that as we are made perfect, as we are perfected, as we are sanctified, that we grow, we mature, we don't stay where we were when we were first became a Christian. But that's not what God wants for us. He wants us, just as this writer was desire was, that the church would, that believers would grow and become stronger and be able to, as it says here in Hebrews 5, to take in the meat, not just the milk of the word. Then the last verses here in Hebrews 13, verses 22 through 25. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in, few, in, a, in few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Salute all of them, salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. As he closes here, he exhorts them to take take to heart what he has written. To, to not be offended, I believe, but to grow from it. It may seem kind of humorous that he says it's a few words. I believe it's one of the longer letters that are written in the New Testament to churches, but yet we get the idea that he could have written a lot longer one is what he's saying. But he condensed it as much as he could, and he did it for their good to challenge them. And we also get the idea, I believe, that it was written to the lay members of the church. So it's possible that the leadership understood these things, but the writer wanted the church to better grasp what he wanted to teach. And I know we've looked at this these eight different messages over a year's time here, but I just wanted to ask, what are some takeaways, things that stood out to you as we looked at Hebrews that you would say kind of sum up or are points, strong points that the writer wanted to make? Anyone else? What what 
when you look at Hebrews, what do you think is the emphasis or the summary of, of what are the things that we can learn from here, Hebrews? I have a couple written down here. One of them is that Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin. I think that you just see it over and over as you go through Hebrews that there were those in the New Testament that struggled with wanting to go back to the Jewish law or keep the Jewish law and believe in Jesus. And I believe Hebrews really addressed that well in saying that that's no longer necessary. That with Jesus as our final sacrifice, we don't need to live under the old covenant, the old sacrifice. Another one is that we, as believers, are all priests. We no longer need an earthly priest going between us and God. But we are all priests who can go straight to Jesus, who is our high priest, and to God. We don't need earthly priests anymore. Any others anybody has thought of? some time here in case someone's shy and they're just scared to say it but thank you for your attention this morning the Lord bless you and I hope that we will remember to keep um, to remain faithful as, for, as chapter 13 um, encouraged to look to faithful believers who went before us to Remain obedient to not only the leaders or authority over us, but to God's word, to Jesus Christ. To uh, let brotherly love continue, as we saw in the beginning of chapter 13. To remember those that are suffering, those that are in bonds. And I hope that we can all remain faithful until he comes again. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for each one that's here. Help us to keep walking with you. Help us, Lord, to keep you first in our lives and to recognize that salvation is not something that we earn through good works, but only your blood can save us. Help us to do good to others to the brethren in the church, to those outside the church, because of what you did, that that's our sacrifice back to you. And just pray, Father, that you would just help us to remain faithful until you come again. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.